Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, a bunch of other stuff, and I'm down kiteboarding in South Padre Island, Texas. Sweet. Yeah. Hello, I'm Sean Casey, uh, registered dietitian, uh, certified sports nutritionist. Uh, I have experience in the supplement industry, and I also uh, coach uh, various athletes. Perfect. I think you're underselling yourself on that a little. You've got some high-end <laughs> athletes. Yeah, various athletes, right. like the top athletes in the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, folks, we are going to cover our usual news. Uh, I have one listener question, but it's really going to be something that we need to bring Phil in on. Um, looks like he's away this week, so uh, I will address uh, that question next week, just sort of table that. The two bits of news I have, they, they are spanking new, like this month. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, and both of them have a similar theme, and I'm going to riff on this a little bit. Um, you know, I just want to be as transparent as possible when I'm speculating, but both of these have a common theme that is basically eating big is the way to grow. Uh, and that might not surprise you, but bear with me and you'll see what I mean about this underlying theme as I see it. Uh, and of course, we'll all chime in. This first one is from Tomlinson and colleagues, uh, Journal of Nutrition this month. Impact of above average pro-anabolic nutrients is overridden by high protein and high energy intake uh, as far as the muscle tendon unit characteristics of middle-aged and older adults. So essentially what they did was um, they examined the associations between age, body fatness, habitual nutritional intake, and physical activity against 11 different muscle tendon unit characteristics. So I think they're trying to get it sort of joint strength and that whole thing. They took 50 untrained, independently living men and women. So 15 men and 35 women aged 43 to 80 years of age. So middle age all the way through the uh, older. They looked at many things, and I'm just going to sort of jump to the results here. Body mass index predicted eight of the 11 variables that they were looking at as far as muscle tendon uh, characteristics. So you can think of like tendon health, if you will. Uh, so BMI predicting eight of 11 daily energy intake predicted seven of 11 of these muscle tendon characteristics. And they looked at several other things, but they just loaded less heavily. Uh, age was not hmm. quite as big a deal, if you will, as BMI and energy intake. Physical activity was not as big a deal as body size or energy intake. Um, and their body fatness didn't have as much impact either. So I'm taking away from this that your your 
gross size and the amount that you eat seem to have some of the biggest effects on muscle tendon characteristics. It says, hmm. Endocrine and dietary profiles, but not physical activity, differ between the top and bottom 20% of muscle unit size and specific force. So, uh, again, endocrine and diet being sort of big things. Conclusions, uh, given the number of factors associated with muscle tendon unit uh, variables, education should be targeted to both adequate food quantity and quality, especially protein intake. So, I don't know, I found that very interesting. Of all the things that could go into your tendon um, characteristics, at least the way they measured them, uh, and they looked at a lot of things in this study, but it looked like body size and the amount you eat are some of the biggest. Now, the BMI thing doesn't surprise me all that much, to be honest. Like, one of the things when I was looking at bone density of high-protein consumers, uh, I had to really adjust for body size, right? Because the simple fact that the bigger dudes had much denser bones, I really had to correct for that, right? Because I was after what protein, high-protein diets did to your bones. So, um, I don't know. Mike, do you have any thoughts on that? Size and the amount you eat and tendon quality, it looks like? I mean, I'm abusing that term. Did it say how they analyzed the tendons on there? Was it just kind of imaging or something like that? Oh, my goodness, yeah. There's just a huge variety of things. So, the way that they said it was daily energy intake predicted 7 of the 11 Variables. It said there was no difference in cytokine concentrations in their serum, uh, hmm. you know, things like that. They were using DEXA, cytokine measurements, physical activity. 11 MTU characteristics of the gastrocnemius medialis using a combination of isokinetic dynamometry, electromyography, and ultrasonography. So, oh, okay. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, because my first thought is, and I'm sure they corrected for this in the paper, and you probably mentioned it, is just bigger muscle size you would expect to you know, obviously have bigger tendons and mm-hmm. results of getting that is probably from you know eating eating more but it sounds like they did a pretty in-depth analysis on the the sub factors and found that both quality and quantity were associated with it which you know on surface level you go that kind of makes sense but i haven't seen much at all uh research on that looking at it so i think that's pretty interesting yeah, it's a nutrition journal, so you're not going to expect quite the same focus maybe on, right. you know, I mean, aside from, you know, they use an isokinetic uh, machine and, you know, EMG and ultrasound. Um, yeah, no one's going to want a tendon biopsy. <laughs> no, right, see, yeah. So it would be neat to look at maybe MRI or some other ways to, I don't know how they're all assessing this. Like I said, I, I don't have the full paper in front of me. But the focus is on, you know, adequate habitual nutrition and then how it basically relates to, they say, um, muscle quality and all the things that go into it. The one thing I would wonder then is if you could, maybe there's a study out on this, I haven't looked, that if you have an athlete training for relative body size and strength, which you would assume at some point they're probably going to be in a caloric deficit, especially if they're cutting down. I wonder if they're at a risk for, you know, tendon or soft tissue injuries at that point. I mean, it, anecdotally, I tend to hear more people when they're, you know, cutting down or trying to cut weight that that happens, but that could be compounded by, you know, hydration and overtraining or overreaching and a whole bunch of other stuff too. But you know, maybe there's some slight change to the tendon qualities during that time if it's taken out long enough. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to balance essentially diet against age right in this. And sure. it looks like it's just a real big deal. 
staying big and eating big, essentially, you know, and staying strong. And when they talk about diet quality in the, the their literature review, they talk about several things, protein, vitamin D, you know, the usual suspects, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acid intake, um, yeah, protein B12, et cetera, et cetera. So. Did you say in there that uh, physical activity was not associated with tendon quality? Uh, well, they did it as far as predicting how many of the variables, right? They're just looking at, of course, the yeah. correlations here. And it says physical mm-hmm. activity, if you want a number, uh, BMI and daily energy intake were predicting seven or eight out of the 11 uh, muscle tendon qualities. And physical mm-hmm. activity predicted five of the 11. So, Interesting. I, I would have thought that would have had a little bit more of an impact on the tendon quality from a predictive standpoint. Yeah. Um, mathematically, it was very similar to age as far as what it was able to predict. Like like I said, five out of the 11. And then body fat, and it's only predicted four out of the 11 qualities. Um, so, yeah. And I wish I could de- delve into that more especially among the three of us, but I think listeners are like, okay, got it, Lowry. You know? <laughs> so um, anyway, so th- the theme here to me, it looks like, well, they said educating uh, patients and clients, right, on adequate food quantity and quality, especially protein, was a real big deal as far as maintaining your tendons. And let's face it, we have a lot of listeners who you get in middle age, your tendons start nagging, you know, and it can slow down your training or you could even have a rupture. And uh, Phil and I both know about that. Mike, I can't remember. Have you torn anything, like, from weights or? Uh, not really. I screwed up my ankle doing a snowboarding thing. I have ripped out my right shoulder from broom ball, separated my left shoulder, pulled both my hip flexors and my groin, but I never had an image to know how bad it was, but I couldn't really walk, so it was pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, right. I mean, and <laughs> outcome research there. Um, yeah. Did you turn yeah. black and blue from any of that, from like you know the effusion and stuff, or no? The ankle turned completely black and blue in the size of a small cantaloupe. The oh. other ones actually didn't, because that's why when I did the groin thing, I asked the doc. I said I don't see a lot of bruising or effusion or anything, and he's like, "Well, you know, maybe the tendons were all pretty avascular, and you know, sometimes if you did it in a deep compartment structure, as long as you don't have." you know, incredibly blinding pain or some type of weird compartment syndrome. It's like, who knows? Right. Okay. All that stuff's like incredibly deep, so who knows? Right. Deep hemorrhaging (laughs) didn't show up under your skin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It felt horrible, though. felt like super tight and like you could just bounce quarters off it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I mean, let's face it. I mean, all of us are going to be pretty tuned into the idea of eat your quality proteins. And we're doing that for muscular strength and size anyway. Um, but, you know, Phil, I, all of us have actually talked about the turnover of tendons is so slow. And you just, as you yeah. age, I think you really got to stay consistent with keeping the, the food intake up. And, you know, uh, the next one is, uh, again, a similar theme. Uh, let me preface this. I actually went so far in the past when I was very desperate to take up as much space as possible, you know, and just be as big as I could be as a bodybuilder. Um, I would look at livestock literature, and Mike, you and I have talked about this in the past. Like, if you want to, yeah, if you want to totally. see people, yeah, dumping money into how to grow anabolics, you know, uh, GH and oh, adrenergics and calories, and you know, because obviously ranchers and people in ag in agriculture, they're very interested in spending as little as possible for as much gain as possible, right? Because they're selling the animals meat, 
So anyway, there's some great books out there from the um, government, like uh, Metabolic Modifiers is one that I remember. Um, but this one is along those lines, okay? So they're going to look at animals and what makes them grow fast or grow slow. Uh, and this is brand new stuff. Um, Van Erp and colleagues, again, Journal of Nutrition, this month, November, reduced feed intake rather than increased energy losses explains the variation in growth rates of normal birth weight piglets. So they took pigs and uh, really looked at what made them grow. Okay, So the background here, substantial variation in growth rates exists in normal birth weight piglets. Within this population, slow growth rates are associated with reduced insulin sensitivity. And that should make sense to everybody, right? If your insulin's not working very well, you know, that's sort of the storage hormone and that sort of thing, anti-catabolic hormone, if you will. Um, there's lots of back and forth on exactly how insulin is working for growth. But it says slowly digestible starches may improve growth efficiency in slowly growing pigs. Um, the whole idea is, of course, it's going to reduce postprandial blood glucose. And, you know, their bodies will have a chance to take these slow carbs and put them to work, essentially, uh, for growth. So the objective, the main uh, aim of the study was to investigate maintenance, energy requirements, and the efficiency of energy, right, of calories used for growth of slow or fast-growing pigs that had equal birth weight, okay? And then they fed them either a slow digesting starch or a rapidly digestible starch. Uh, results. Gross energy intake was 4% greater for the fast-growing pigs than for slow-growing pigs. So they're eating more. Um, fasting heat production and energy efficiencies did not differ between the pig types or the diets. Uh, it says fat retention was 2% greater for the rapid digesting starch, so the fast-acting carbs, uh, than it was for the slow-digesting fed pigs, uh, starch-fed pigs. Conclusions, a lower energy intake rather than greater maintenance requirements, like, you know, basal metabolic rate types of things, uh, or lower energy intake explains the slow growth of the slow-growing pigs. Let me say that again. A low calorie intake explains the slow growth. So, again, not unlike that other study, you know, about eating for tendon health and muscle quality as you age, that seems to be the big deal here. Because, you know, you, you always hear in humans about hard gainers. You all have a fast metabolism. It's hard to make gains. They seem to be saying... Higher energy intakes are are the, the target. You just got to eat. You've got to eat. Um, I don't know. Uh, Sean, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, I know this is in livestock, but is calorie intake, you know, the, the huge focus when you try to get someone to gain? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, obviously the, the main emphasis is trying to increase calories. And I put... What I end up finding with most people who are hard gainers is um, they have an unrealistic idea of – or they don't properly understand how much food they're actually consuming, like, from a number <laughs> standpoint. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of times, once I start getting into their diets, you know, they're trying to, you know, train like a bull, but they're eating like a rabbit. Um, and so just simply increasing the amount of food, uh, peanut butter is kind of like a lifesaver uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's what it comes down to is most people um, eat, you know, either if they're a hard gainer, they're simply just not eating a lot of food. Um, obviously, there's exceptions to it. But 
I, I find the biggest thing comes down to people just, like you said, not eating enough food or thinking that they're going to get huge while also getting a crazy six-pack to go along with it. Oh, right. Yeah, no doubt. I, we've talked about that many times over the years, right? So many uh, local guys, like in my local area, they try to stay lean all the time. And over the years, my brother and myself and some of my friends who would hang with the powerlifters a little bit more and you know, or just eat like crazy, like sort of emulating what I saw when I was in Southern California, you know, see some, some of these pros, pro bodybuilders, and of course they're hormonally enhanced, but just eating heroic amounts of food. And the, the guys around here who stayed lean, we just blew past them over the years, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30, 40 pounds. You know, as the decades passed, I'm like, you guys are the same size. Like when I met you 30 years ago, you weighed, you know, roughly what you weigh now. Because you were you you're just too afraid to eat maybe to, you know hold on to the six pack abs kind of thing. Um, Mike, what are your thoughts on this as far as you know? They're looking at slow and fast carbs. Uh, I think I would think the fast carbohydrates would lead to more energy intake. You know, it's almost like the Lucky Charms yeah, mass game. You you thought. eat, you know, you're hungry shortly thereafter. What do you think? Yeah, that was my thought with that and. I've done that with some people is that I'll give them more quote unquote fast acting, more highly processed carbs just to get more fuel in them. You know, cause like what Sean was saying, uh, you know, a lot of guys come in and they're like, Oh bro, I can't eat anymore. You are like, okay, go get a food scale. Like I want you to actually spend a week, you know, weigh everything just so we have an accurate idea of where you're at. And I've lost track of how many times it comes in at like 2,500 calories, you know, and it's a, Usually a guy who wants to lift five, six days a week. I'm like, no, nope, you're going to need to eat more than that. Oh, that's so much food. <laughs> and then you look at it, and sometimes you find people that are almost too hyper-focused on quality. And granted, yes, you want to eat quality. Yes, you want to eat high-quality food, and I totally agree with that. But, you know, having a bowl of Lucky Charms once in a while is not going to be the end of the world, especially when you scale them up to, you know, 3,000, 3,500 or more calories per day. You've got more than enough room to get in all your micronutrients and to get everything else in. You're probably more active. You're moving around more. They tend to be younger in age, too. So having a few bowls of you know, Lucky Charms or whatever once in a while is not going to be the end of the world. And sometimes you get to the point where you almost need to do that, quote-unquote, to actually get in enough you know, volume. And like you said, Lonnie, sometimes people get more hungry after that. Sometimes it makes me wonder about what their glucose and insulin profiles are, but you can check that. Um, so I think there's a, a use for that. I remember, uh, I think it was Matt Wenny, and I've heard other people say this too, is that you you can't get beefy eating leafy. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, because it sticks, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, the conclusions here, just to expand, it says – uh, as I mentioned, a lower energy intake rather than greater maintenance requirements, rather than just you know high metabolic rate, if you will, explains the slow growth. Low energy intake explains the slow growth. It says um, also um, the rapid digestible starch intake, so what we're calling the lucky charm kind of diet, um, did increase fat deposition. Um, it says Energy efficiency of the carbohydrate use was not affected, thus feeding slow digestible starch instead of rapid digestible starch does not improve growth efficiency, as they had hoped, I think. 
uh, but may result in slightly leaner pigs, right? So go for the slower acting, low glycemic stuff maybe. You might end up being leaner. Um, but yeah, as far as their hope that the slower carbs might be better for growth, that didn't really pan out. So, yeah. Well, that's comment too. I remember asking uh, Dr. John Brardy years ago now. <clears throat> I said, what do I do? I got this client. He's like, just, you know, well, he's afraid that he eats more and he keeps getting leaner. And John's like, well, if he's really that big of a hard gainer, he's like, just tell him to keep eating more because at some point he will out-eat his metabolism. It's not going to scale up forever. Yep. Oh, yeah. Physics wins again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Physics is real, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, totally. And it could be very hard, too. But, yeah, it, it can oh, be very yeah. frustrating. And we all know this, right? Lean weight gain is as hard in many ways as fat loss. You know, when we talk about body comp and all that stuff, usually in dietetics, Sean, I'm sure you can kind of back this up. So much of the focus is on losing fat, you know, or, or even worse, just losing weight. And, and we just had a body comp lecture this past week in my sports nutrition course. And, you know, where I'm talking about, listen, you've got to think about partitioning the nutrients toward muscle mass, you know, and that's where the resistance training comes in, you know. I actually had a dietitian, a sports nutrition prof years ago, and she was talking about the increased energy requirements to grow, and at some point I raised my hand and I said, what, so you're, you're just saying that if you eat X number more calories every day, you're going to be that much larger in muscle mass? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, well, what keeps that from becoming body fat, right? <laughs> I mean, what's the stimulus, so I go out of my way now to really point out in classes, listen, there is a training stimulus, right, resistance training stimulus, and a hormonal reality here. You know, hormones underwrite tissue mass in a lot of ways um, that you can't deny, right? It's not – I mean, in other words, energy balance, being a positive energy status, it's the beginning but not the end-all, be-all of weight weight management, you know, and I was just blown away. They said, oh, yeah, you just eat more and you just get bigger. I'm like, wait, what? Now, Mike, you and I both know, though, and we talked about this, and Sean, you do too, that in the past we've talked about how if you simply overeat, a surprising chunk of that is muscle mass, right? Even if yeah, you don't lift. Study. So yeah, fascinating up to stuff. Up 40% in some of the subjects. And again, it was 1,000 calories for eight weeks. But, you know, that's still pretty fascinating. It is. Yes, it is. So, um, again, the takeaway from these two papers, whether it's for tendon health, muscle quality as you age, or, you know, looking at animals as a model of growth, um, eat, right? Larger energy intake, quantity, as well as quality. Was, it's, it's a simple driver, and it can be frustrated, I know, when people say they're hard gainers. But, yeah, to your point or John's point about out eat your metabolism – I always say, you know, the, the scales will eventually tip, right? You cannot deny yeah. the laws of physics. Uh, and it might be a ridiculous number of calories, you know, 4,500, 5,000 calories a day, things that you're just not used to. And if you want to hear more about that, listen back to some of the early years of the show, you know, Phil and myself and, and Rob just railing about how difficult it can be. Like it sounds, oh, it's like fun. You want, you want me to eat bowls of boxes of Lucky Charms? Bring it. Well, yeah, but after a while, that's going to get tiresome. So anyway, just a couple of studies that suggest and remind everybody, time to eat, right? Thanksgiving's coming up in the States. Time to eat. 
Okay, um, I'm going to table this last one. I do have a real quick Iron Radio news before we go to break, since we're on the news thing. Um, Kayla, the intern, is emailing non-disclosure agreements and release forms for all of you who wanted to participate in the, the coffee tasting and the brew um, patent, if you will, that we're looking at. Uh, so expect those by email in the next two weeks. All we want you to do is sign them, uh, take a picture of them, and then return them to Kayla. That's pretty much it. Once you do that, you sign those non-disclosure forms, because, of course, this is a new invention, then we will then snail mail you uh, a package of the prototypes and some instructions and things like that, and we can finally get underway. I've had some really good conversations with some of the people at the Specialty Coffee Association about using some of their um, assessment tools so we can do things that are very much like a international standard. Uh, and yeah, and the fun part is you actually learn how to be a coffee taster while you're helping us, you know, with the focus groups and, and whatnot developing this. So uh, good stuff. Oh, and one last thing. I wanted to give a specific uh, shout out to David. You know who you are. We're going to call him longtime power supporter of Iron Radio. So he really helps bring you this uh, show along with so many people, right, uh, in the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood as far as funding things and keeping the show on the air as we approach 10 years right it's the community engagement and that show of support that helps us say hey do we want to keep doing this how long do we want to keep doing this i mean this is episode 495 we are dangerously close to the 500 mark and i don't know how many podcasts period go that long let alone in fitness right so pod fades a thing most people excitedly they have high production values their show lasts for like five episodes and we're pushing 500. So, cool stuff. All right, having said that, we're going to go to break. When we come back, Sean is going to give us some insider insights as far as starting a supplement company. So, we'll be back. Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. 
Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. <laughs> All right, we're back. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, Dr. Lonnie Lowry. We've got our good buddy Sean Casey here on. He's going to talk to us about everything you ever wanted to know about doing your own supplement startup. And even if you're not interested in doing your own supplement, I think this will give you a very cool insider peek into the supplement industry, which is always interesting and fascinating. Yeah, it's really undergone some changes, too, since what we used to hear about how yes. easy right, it was. Um, Sean, let's start with uh, the question, why did you even want to do a sports supplement company startup? Um, kind of the background behind it was uh, just trying to find supplements that had efficacious doses of the ingredients that I was interested in with the athletes. Um, I know it's you know a topic we've talked about a lot is the uh, fairy dusting, where you know say an efficacious dose of citrulline maybe what six grams or four grams depending on the study you look at and you might have something that has like one gram in it or things of that nature and so 
that was kind of the background was starting there. And myself, I've always been a fan of Frankensteining uh, supplements together. So for me, t- you know, having five uh, bottles of raw powders and mixing them together was cool. Um, what I found though was a lot of the clients that I was working with, uh, they wanted something, you know, be it, uh, all packed together. Um, they weren't really as interested in Frankensteining stuff on their own. Um, and so that's what, uh, got me talking with another individual, um, about was going together and having different supplements that already have, you know, um, you know, whatever, uh, ingredients you're looking for already packaged together. Um, so that was, you know, the main reason was trying to get supplements out that had efficacious doses of the things that we were looking for um, and that our clients were looking for. Yeah, I always appreciated that you would be evidence-based. Like, I, I, I Actually, I haven't really paid attention to that term fairy dusting before. That's funny, right? Because so <laughs> I think a lot of our, our listeners probably are onto this, but supplement companies – I used to sit there on one side of the table, usually, you know, as the single exemplar of the science guy, maybe with one of my my colleagues across from a table full of marketers, and they're very excited. And a lot of these entrepreneurs, and this has been reinforced to me recently, they're idea men, and we need that. But a lot of the ideas, that's not how physics works. It's not how physiology works. It's just <laughs> it's fantasy, you know. And so you're like, that's that'd be great if it was real, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But also, yeah, that they the price point of a bottle. If they say we want to sell this bottle at thirty dollars, uh, that's where they then go do their raw material sourcing and all that kind of stuff. It's not it's not necessarily based on what works. I mean, imagine if aspirin was sold that way, you know, and they they wanted the price point on that bottle of aspirin to be like three dollars and twenty five cents, uh, and then they go they go get their aspirin, you know, or their willow bark source or whatever it was. Um, you know, and you're taking an aspirin with like eight milligrams of aspirin when we know that you need like 350 or so to, to get some kind of, you know, physiologic effect. So, yeah, that, I always appreciate that, that you would put together stuff that was evidence-based or, or put together, like you said, in a Frankenstein approach. What goes into this that would actually complement each other and not just block each other's effects or, you know, end up with some weird toxic synthesis, you know, because you need you need some nutritionists and physiologists to start to discuss what's what's real. So, no, no and, and that's interesting, too, you kind of uh, jarred a thought when you were talking there was, you know, in terms of building the supplements, too, having things that don't block each other's effect or working on the same exact mechanism. Because, you know, one thing I see in a lot of proprietary formulas is uh, you might have be a joint support one or maybe some sort of uh, pre-workout stimulant or whatever it is where they have about five different buzzword ingredients but they all work on the same exact mechanism rather than trying to have synergistic mechanisms working together Mm -hmm. um, on that type of thing so that was the other thing that uh, was kind of frustrating for me from a supplement industry standpoint was um, various products were, like I said, uh, instead of having things that work in synergism or work on slightly different mechanisms, they were all funneled towards, you know, the let's shoot lightning bolts out of our fingertips type of uh, <laughs> mechanism where, you know, you can only do so much on that mechanism before you just overwhelm it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. There are certain companies that I turn to. You can tell the ones that have done their homework, you know, and they're using the right combination of whether it's a standardized extract of an herb or different nutrients. And you can tell, yeah, they're using different biochemical pathways or they're trying to do it right, you know. Um, 
some supplement companies, like uh, the Now company, I buy quite a few things from. You can see certain SKUs, certain products in their lineup that that's the one that people in the know buy, <laughs> and this other one in the same company's lineup is probably not as good. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about there's a particular. I was looking at a prostate product recently, and some of them have. You know, they're really drilling down into the actual active ingredient as opposed to the the gross. I don't know, food ingredient, so to speak. And I know there's an argument for whole foods and all the unknown combinations of what's in there and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, you could kind of get the idea is who's who's in the know uh, when they're designing, you know, these things. So I'm sure your education was valuable. Um, let's get to the current state of affairs, how things have changed. So a lot of people have watched movies like Bigger, Stronger, Faster, you know, the Wild West old days. There's almost no regulation. They're they're actually bottling up pills in their kitchen. Is that your experience? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> um, you know, I wish that was the case. I probably would have had a lot better, or we probably would have had a lot better profit margins uh, per bottle if I could just mix in my bathtub and magic marker a label on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's definitely much more stringent than that. Uh, and so, you know, any lab that you work with uh, has to be FDA, uh, um, G, um, G, GMP compliant, which is based kind of a food uh, safety and, you know, supplement safety uh, type thing. But um, any supplement that you work through uh, has to go through uh, multiple testing processes. Uh, when these various manufacturers, when they have the ingredients arrive at their manufacturing facility, um, first thing they need to be tested for is uh, microbial safety, um, heavy metals, and then also uh, accuracy in terms of the acting ingredient. You know, I um, I forget the exact name of the test. I think it's an infrared um, thing where basically they have to go over uh, and show, yes, this has this active ingredient, this type of quality in it. Um, and then as it's going through the manufacturing process, a lot of your manufacturers have, you know, at various stages, um, additional verification processes. Um you know, by the time the uh, the blending is all um, completed, you know, again, going over, making sure that it has the right amounts of each ingredient. Um, the one thing that we did a lot on our protein powders, uh, meal supplements, things of that nature, is at the end of the testing, I uh, have what's done called the NLEA testing, which basically verifies the amount of protein, carbohydrates. Um, if you're trying to claim, you know, a certain amount of fiber, or, you know, or whatever active ingredient your things are, um, having it tested there uh, is really important. And then also, once the final product is uh, completed, having them do running another heavy metals test on it, as well as a microbial test to make sure that nothing was introduced into the product during the blending process. Gotcha. Mike, obviously your background in medical device sales, that that's going to be really closely regulated i would think oh Um, yeah what what's your insight as far as we could use that if we use that as an example right of a highly regulated lots of responsibility kind of industry right because these are devices that are being inserted into human beings and things like that uh what is your take on the supplement world versus your world in that sort of medical engineering stuff yeah it's such a a fine line between so i worked in cardiology products face figures defibrillators for 10 years 
And I worked in technical service and some leads design, so saw kind of both aspects. And part of that was meeting with a lot of uh, physicians for design requirements and stuff, too, as part of that. And it's fascinating to look at uh, even cardiology compared to orthopedics. So the orthopedics have gotten a lot better recently that a lot of people are rightfully very concerned that if you're a physician, that you want to put in the highest quality product, which totally makes sense. The downside is nothing is ever going to be 100% perfect, no matter who makes it or how much you go through. So what is kind of uh, acceptable failure rate, which nobody wants to ever talk about? <laughs> right. <laughs> because it's a medical device and you, you're not trying to have any failures. You're doing everything you can possibly to avoid them. But the reality is it, it's going to happen. And when I was there, we went through this whole thing where I sat in a meeting once for every day for an hour for a month and a half. And we had statistics people come in. We hired another outside statistics person to come in, basically trying to figure out this device we had. You know, what was the percentage? We found a bug in the software that we couldn't change. It was encoded into the device. And what are the odds? You know, do we report it? Obviously, we reported it to the FDA, but do we have to, what do we do beyond that? And at the end of the day, we ended up, you know, reporting it and ended up having a recall on it because the statistics we came up with were like, you had a chance of like one in, I don't remember what it was, a million or something just astronomical. But we all sat around the table and went, okay, if this is on, this is on, this is on, the patient goes in AFib at this time and this happens, wow, I guess, yeah, we could see a situation where that actually could happen. So I think trying to figure out what is an acceptable uh, risk from that and then into the supplement world is if you become so entirely like ultra regulated to the borderline of almost like pharmaceuticals, you're probably not going to have anything new and you're probably not going to have many different products because nobody has that kind of money to put into it other than a very few manufacturers or I should say are willing to do that. Um, and then you can also look at, okay, what is the risk of you know dietary supplements currently? And yeah, there's people who do stupid things and there's unfortunate things that happen. But from what I've seen, it's pretty low. I mean, aspirin and Tylenol kill you know thousands of people a year and they're an over-the-counter drug that almost anybody can buy. So I'd say, relatively speaking, they're already safe. That doesn't mean they will always be that way. But my biggest pet peeve is that I get worried about people who want more regulation in the supplement field, which, depending on what it is, might be useful. But if it becomes ultra-highly regulated, I don't think the safety profile is going to be all that much better. Mm -hmm. And what we have access to is definitely going to go down and go away. Right, yeah. Uh, I I get the feeling when I travel abroad that a lot of other countries, they look at the U.S. like, again, like the the Wild West. Like we yeah. have such – because of Deshaies, right, the Dietary Supplement Health Ed Act uh, in the early 90s, we have such access to things that other countries are just like, we're not going to do that. We can't believe you guys sell that as a supplement you know, and that sort of thing. Um, I did want to make one comment though and maybe a question to Sean. As far as the fairy dusting idea again, but what would you say to this? I tend to think, and this could be my bias, that supplement consumers, they want to believe 
something is, you know, fat burning or muscle building. They want to believe to the point that they are willing to tolerate low to no effects. Like they're not really right. going to hold it to the same standard of a medical device, for example. Um, do you think that's true? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, definitely true on that. Uh, you, you know, it's it's with anything. If you really, really want to believe something will work, you know, you can placebo yourself into getting that effect um, to a certain degree. I mean, if you have something, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, capsaicin or some sort of metabolic, you know, enhancer, uh, you know, if, you, if you're really believing that strong, seeing that on a label is definitely going to trip it off for you um, there. Mm-hmm. And what I always kind of caution people with is, you know, pay attention. Is it the supplement itself causing the change in what you're feeling and what you're doing? Or is it the fact that when you take, when you spend money on a product that says fat burning, you're committing it, you're committing to that goal financially. And now you're also taking care, better care of your overall diet um, your overall sleep patterns, your overall like fitness levels. Yeah, that's an interesting conundrum, right? Because I suppose you could argue then, then I hate to say it this way, but the supplement worked, <laughs> even though the <laughs> yeah. compound itself, right? Yeah. You're asking a different question, yeah. right? Did the yeah. purchase, did the purchase make you leaner? Yes, yeah. it did. Yeah, Was it the chemical? Yeah. No. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, t- I guess where I was going with that was, you know, how do supplement companies get away with this sort of, you know, not completely evidence-based dosing and price point-based dosing. How do they get away with it? And I just think, unlike a lot of other markets, uh, eager, you know, lifters, fitness enthusiasts, they they want to believe something to such an extent that they'll accept some very indirect data. Uh, And I think, you know, kind of building off that point a little bit is – uh, a lot of these people who are, you know, marketed the supplements to don't have a background in, you know, um, like so I know all three of us have degrees in be it physio- exercise physiology, uh, nutritional sciences, et cetera. And so, I mean, you know, think of my mom, for instance, God bless her soul. You know, if she saw 10 milligrams of creatine in a supplement, uh, if she was trying to build muscle, she would have no idea if 10 milligrams of creatine was accurate or not. So her eyes would be drawn to simply muscle building mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. there and would buy it without even hesitation. Or I think of myself when I was in like high school, like, you know, I, I, I really didn't know how to evaluate, you know, claims on labels or, you know, what was being said in a various advertorial. And so if I saw, you know, fat burning and they had some unreferenced study from some unknown university in the middle of uh, the uh, random island, I would not have known the difference. So I think a lot of times people are buying a label without really with the assumption that this will work because it's in print in front of my eyes. Okay, so let me ask you this: for like rubber hits the road for our listeners, for as consumers, um, mm-hmm. is the FDA going to make a company put in an efficacious dose? I mean, I know you say it has to be like microbial testing, and you know, yep. it, it uh, meets label claim. Uh, but are they going to do anything to make a company put in an efficacious dose? No, th- there's nothing that the FDA does that forces a uh, um, company to put in an efficacious dose. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time where the FDA is going to do that stuff is there's certain pre-approved FDA claims. Um, most of them are related to like vitamins and minerals, be it you know calcium and whatever helps with bone growth. Um, they have pre-approved labels that you can um, put on your la- – um, or pre-approved claims that you can put on your label 
um, that indicates it has a certain amount of a various, um, like I said, usually they're vitamin or mineral um, type there. Um, after that, any claim on a label, like I'm, uh, if people look on a nutrition label, a lot of the time there'll be a, a box, and in the box they'll say, this statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I do when I'm uh, working on labels is any claim that has not been pre-approved by the FDA, there'll be a little bit of an asterisk by it, and that asterisk will go back to the box. Yeah. Um, so kind of pay attention to when you're looking at supplement labels, you know, is there any uh, – on the claims being made, if they're doing it, you know, with uh, – proper label, you know, claims from a legal standpoint, you always have to have that box and each of your uh, statements going back to that box if it is not a pre-approved FDA one. Right. It does make sense to me why they have structure function type claims like that, Mm -hmm. right? Like help support a healthy muscular system, right? As opposed to Mm -hmm. causes muscle mass gain. You know, you're exactly (laughs) not going to do that. Um, All right. So when you started, I'm guessing you had a lineup of products um, mm-hmm. intended to do various things. Uh, w- which products that you did release when you had your company uh, interested you the most? And did that pan out as far as sales, or did you have to change gears based on consumer interest in, in different products? Um, there was de- definitely uh, – you know, first coming out, the, the key things that uh, we were looking at is, you know, a lot of athletes have joints um, issues. Um, I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners, powerlifters are um, are having, you know, be knee pain, hip pain, whatever it is. Um, and so that was one uh, that we worked on, and we were really fascinated in getting a combination together for that. Uh, another one, and that did really well for us out of the gates, Um Another one that we came out with was, I guess you call it like a energy focus support um, there. And uh, we were using one of the ingredients in it was alpha GPC, um, which is an, a really expensive raw ingredient price. Um, and so we came out with that, again, using the efficacious doses uh, of that um, product, uh, and along with a few other things we had also in it. Um, but we found with that product... We thought it'd sell really well. Um, unfortunately, to use the efficacious doses while having something that turned, uh, you know, a decent profit margin. Because at the end of the day, obviously, we have to make some money to start a living. Right. Um, you know, we had that price at a level which was, you know, the average consumer was a little bit harder for them to, uh, you know, kind of uh, purchase. So we had to bring that price down for it to be at a level that, you know, it was, you know, financially affordable to the the typical consumer. And so that was one of the, you know, the important things I had learned, you know, the first go around in the supplement industry was as you're kind of fine tuning all these products, um, yes, you want to have efficacious doses in it, which, you know, I always stay with, but make sure the ingredients you're choosing allow you to have a product that doesn't have such a, doesn't have like a ridiculous end price that the consumer cannot afford um, on their end. So, um, like, always be aware of what your customer base is. Um, you know, there's a lot of ingredients that are, you know, less expensive that you can still use in efficacious doses or, you know, kind of pick and choose based off what your target market is. You know, are you targeting the the college-age guy who just wants to add meat, meat to his biceps or are you kind of targeting a more affluent uh, demographic? 
that's actually an interesting point that came up when I was in in Boston earlier in the year. Uh, they were giving the example, and I may may have mentioned this on the show here, but they were saying like there are certain demographics. Like one of the things you really have to do as an entrepreneur is understand the daily life, right? Almost like like a case example of your target customer, right? And to understand their their behaviors, because they were saying to your point. Um, about you know more affluent or or not like you might think that Starbucks and Dunkin Donuts compete, but they were saying no, no they don't. Right? Starbucks is the white collar, a little bit more pinky extending, hoity-toity kind of market. You know, businessmen and things like that. And Dunkin is much more blue collar in who they're targeting. You know, they they both may be good coffees, but they're not necessarily competing for the same type. Uh, of customer, right? And I think that's what's interesting in our field is we're such a subculture, you know, bodybuilders, powerlifters. Um, I, I wonder if we even have enough bandwidth that we can do that. You know, like this is just for the higher end supplement user. This is for the people willing to accept something that's lower brow, lower quality. You know what I mean? It's um, more, <clears throat> maybe more basic. Um, because we don't have an entire width of a population to deal with. We're all a subculture, you know, but it is neat to think about the different types. But listen, as we wind down, I want to get some tips from you and Mike both. Um, Sean, we'll start with you since you've gone through all of this uh, gory detail, and I know Mike dabbles in a lot of this too. Yeah. Um, Sean, tips. What? What? Can you give me three tips? If we have listeners who are actually thinking about being an entrepreneur, you know, in dietary supplements or even trying a startup, what would you advise them? The three things that I would advise them, I'll uh, try to keep it short to the point. Um, one is an easy way to find manufacturers uh, is to know what type of certifications you want your uh, product to have. Um, if you want one that's going to be available to, um, like, informed choice for sport. So informed choice for sport manufacturers with that label um, they, uh, they, they're all listed on a website and that basically shows that they're, they don't have any banned substances in them for, you know, professional sports. So the easiest thing to do is figure out what type of certifications you want for your, um, um, for your, uh, for your product brand and go to their websites and you can find a whole list of manufacturers there. Um, the second one is no realizing that science on its own will not sell a product. Mm -hmm. Um, right out of the gates, I thought, you know, all our, our, products are science-backed. We're using efficacious doses. People are going to love this because there's so many supplements that don't use efficacious doses. Um, I found out that marketing uh, has a lot more power than just pure science. Um, so like I said, understand how you're going to market your product in your given demographic. Um, and then the third thing um, is what we already uh, touched on a little bit earlier is just knowing your population that you're trying to sell to. And on the supplement side, try to figure out, do you want to sell a direct-to-consumer, so online sales, or do you want to get your product into various stores and have the stores sell your products? Um, and there's very different approaches that you take to kind of uh, uh, maximize your potential in each field. It's very challenging to sell both in stores as well as online. Got it. All right, Mike, what about you? What would you suggest to people – um, supplement company entrepreneurs out there? Yeah, I would say is the product different or unique and kind of similar to what Sean said, what is your kind of marketing angle? 
And then a subset of that is have a rough idea where your profit margin is. Because uh, I know people who started a supplement company who, uh, and this is not Sean, but where their main pro thing they were selling was protein. And protein historically has very little profit margin in it. Um, but luckily, they then switched to more of a pre-workout, which was uh, different, and they've done you know pretty good since then. Pre-workouts tend to have a much bigger uh, markup on them. So kind of what are you trying to do? It's different, and then a subset of that is have a, just a rough back-of-the-envelope calculation of profit margin on that. Because to start a brand-new protein supplement company is going to be incredibly hard unless you've got a boatload of cash you want to dump into it. Um, the second part is... <clears throat> know what the science says at least to baseline support it and if you don't know maybe you need to hire someone to figure that out because um, I do agree with Sean that uh, sadly marketing is going to be more relevant than science but all of us would agree that I think the only way the supplement industry is going to get better is if people putting out more science-based products and then it's probably not going to change until consumers actually start buying those but that's a whole different uh, argument altogether. But I think my bias is that that's going to be a better way to go. And I think the industry is trying to change more in that direction, although it's ungodly slow. Um, the third thing is that if you're not sure about uh, something, you know, get access to people who have done it before. And even if you have to pay them a lot of money, you'll probably more than come out ahead. Um, so I did a paid formulation for a company. The product will actually be out this fall, hopefully in a couple of weeks. Uh, I can't say what it is because I'm under contract not to say what it is. But <laughs> I, I did that on purpose. But the first thing I did is I had everything specced out. I had all the science. I had everything done. But I hadn't done a direct formulation for probably like five years. So I talked to Sean. I you know talked to some other guys. And you know for some of the individuals, I paid them a lot of money per hour to be like, hey, here's what I'm doing. Is, is this good? What am I missing? Like, what are the questions I should be asking you that I'm not asking you? Mm -hmm. You know, and everyone was like super helpful and, you know, more than willing to give me all sorts of great information. And the reality was from a, a business standpoint, I knew enough what to ask, but it was also a very cheap comparatively CYA, you know, to make sure that you are, you know, going in the right direction. So never be afraid to, to ask for help, even if you've got to, you know, pay someone an ungodly high amount per hour. You know, it'll more than save you money in the end. I think that's such good advice. I, we get so excited about understanding yeah. the physiology that, yeah, if you're outside your wheelhouse, go ask a businessman who who that's his thing or her thing, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I like the way you posed that question. Like, what questions should I be asking that I'm not? That's really, yeah. really smart. Because yeah, then they'll give you like really good information that you may have never even went, oh, shit, I totally forgot all about that. Yep. You know, because, you know, one of the things I forgot about was that I knew about, but I didn't know to what extent was like the Prop 65 in California. You know, so I got some very good information on, I knew what it was and I knew the basics, but, you know, okay, here's specifically what you want to look for testing. Here's the order of what you want to do for testing and here's, this test will be way more expensive than that one, but you can use this one as an interim. And if it pops for that one, then you're already over the limit, so you don't need to do any more testing. You know, stuff like that that was very super practical also. Right, yep. Uh, you know, case in point, I know a relatively inexperienced professor 
and sort of this this idea that you know you get so into the science and I, I made a comment about science versus marketing, which was what we're talking about right now. And he said, well, of course it's going to be popular. I published a paper on it. And I thought, <laughs> I, I mean, and I'm, I'm trying not to roll my eyes, but I'm sure it was obvious. And I'm like, listen, that type of manuscript or poster or whatever, that is one weapon in the marketer's arsenal, but just one. They can weave a tapestry of fascination that doesn't include you at all, brother, right? Yeah. And so to the point about the power of marketing – and I know what you're saying too, both of you guys. That you know, you do need someone who can put together a nice little dossier or background folder of, you know, information that at least it's yeah. based in reality. You know, um, but yeah, the naivety of his comment, and he is completely convinced. You know that that's enough. I'm like, well, I live and learn. <laughs> you know, like yeah. mom says, some things you got to live through. So you go ahead with your super popular idea. You know, and your and your your paper there that I think maybe three dozen people will read, but yeah. Anyway, um, I would only add one thing to what you guys are saying, and I, I've developed just a handful of things, you know, from literally like a prototype through to the market. Uh, but is sometimes your goal is not to distribute this yourself. Like Sean was talking about, yeah. straight to the consumer or not. Sometimes your goal, and this is going to sound terrible, but it's not when you think about it, is to sell out, right? Your goal, and I don't mean sell out as far as marketing something that's false or you know not efficacious, but I mean sell your idea, license your idea to a larger company that can do it right. They have the resources, they have the labs, they have the marketing power. If your real goal is to make money and improve the world in some way or do something novel, sometimes it's better to you know, have pitch meetings and market this, you know, pitch it to a larger company who has the distribution channels. They have everything that's necessary so they can do it right. And I think that's the idea with a, 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 quite a bit of intellectual property, right? It's not to try to do it yourself starting in farmer's markets and slowly working your way up over a 10-year period, and especially if you have a day job. So sometimes it's, you know, make that pitch to a larger company that I think ha it can do it really professionally and give it the, the quality and the rollout that it deserves. So it's just it's a, it's and, an alternate endpoint that I think people should think about. And one quick point I'll add on that is that and decide if this is what you actually want to be doing with most of your time. So I had an idea that for several years no one was interested in. So finally I met with a business guy who had a list that was in the area who said, okay, we can sell it, you know, direct to them. So I'm like, well, that takes care of that. Uh, Sean helped me with the manufacturer and another guy helped me, you know, get the you know formula done. We had the raws, we had everything done, you know, to pull the trigger on it. And at the last moment, I was like, man, the markup on it wasn't what I expected. And I spent a couple of days thinking, okay, if I want to do this myself, it's going to be a couple of years of barely breaking even. And do I really want to dedicate that much time to it? And I ended up just pulling the plug on it, which, you know, cost me money. But I feel pretty good with that, you know, because yeah. it's like uh, if it would have went forward, I think it would have been more difficult than I imagined, especially with the price point. Um, so I think people listening, you know, is this something you really want to spend a lot of your time? And Sean can attest to this, too, that you will probably dramatically underestimate the amount of time you think you're going to spend on it 
compared to once you're actually doing it. So keep that in mind. And I'm sure that probably happened to you, Sean. I'm not picking on you, but it happens oh, to everybody. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I, I, I totally understand. And, and that's, you know, there's a lot of truth in that is, you know, especially people who are looking to or who are running another job while yeah. trying to start up a new company. Um, I mean, I was easily putting in 85 hour work weeks between my two jobs. And, uh, you know, it, you know, you start doing that for multiple years, it grinds on you. So make sure what you want to do. Um, and, you know, one thing is, you know, you can, this would be a whole nother conversation topic, but, you know, you can look into get investors or, you know, or like you alluded to, Lonnie, you know, sell, sell your intellectual property to a company that has um, the channels already established. You know, if, if you sell, if you're so passionate, maybe you're a coach for athletes or you're a professor or, you know, whatever it is, you know, don't be afraid to look at different things and really know, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life or the rest of the next five to 10 years? Right. Yeah. And it is a hard call, I imagine, to think, I want to completely own this. I think I can build this. But you better have more of a plan and be consulting with people who understand marketing and distribution channels and that sort of thing, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of just slowly working up. Because, yeah, it's very, very possible that five, 10 years down the road, you've barely scaled up beyond local I don't know, um, coffee shops or farmers markets or low low end kinds of distribution channels, and you're barely making any profit at all. Yeah, and then when you break down how many hours you're spending a week on it, you're like, holy god, I'm making two dollars an hour. <laughs> I might as well have been flipping burgers at the local McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. Not to not to squash the spirit, right? The entrepreneurial no, spirit. No, no, of course not. Of course not. Distribution is like a huge thing. So like when the people ask me, I'm like, okay, so how are you going to sell it? And if they look at you like a deer in the headlights of a Peterbilt, you're like, you should spend some time thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things I learned working the supplement company is it's it's arguably mostly that. Like what are your distribution channels? Even some of the bigger companies that I, I've consulted for, they would fall over each other to get themselves into – a Walmart or a Circle K or, you know, because uh, once you get shelf space in there, I mean, you, you're almost instantly big time, you know, and they were desperate to do that. But And I can see why. Like distribution channels are kind of everything. And there are gatekeepers in the dietary supplement world. I actually know a couple who they work regionally or nationally, and they know a lot of the buyers, and, and they can get you in these places, you know. And, yeah, you're right. That's Distribution is so huge. Anyway, okay. Well, thanks for coming on, Sean. I appreciate the expertise, my man. Oh, thanks for having me on. Always a, yeah, always thanks a for pleasure. Having me on, man. Always enjoyed. Okay, folks, that's going to be it for this week. Uh, we'll catch up with you next time. Uh, we'll get Phil back in here to answer uh, some of these questions that are so powerlifting oriented. Uh, but I thought that might be helpful uh, because, again, there's been so much growth and so many changes, uh, regulations involved. Uh, with dietary supplements, it's not quite the Wild West a lot of people think it is, but and yet people still, they need educated on this stuff so they can make the right decisions. So we'll see you next time. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our halls of iron 
store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.